visit our website www.learntorah.com where we have more than 8,000 shiurim for your selection. Coming soon in spring 2015, look forward to our updated website and free apps for both Apple and Android featuring the ability to set auto-downloads of your favorite rabbis so you can listen while offline. On our website and at your local New York Hebrew bookstores, available for purchase are our featured publications, including Rabbi Eli Mansour's Living Torah and Insights on the Amidah. Everyone today is out there fighting for something. They're fighting for Parnassah. They're fighting for good children. Some people are fighting for their health. Like we said, the class is in Rufu Ashlema of Rabbi Yafi from Kupatair. Everyone out there today is fighting for something. Says Hashem, don't fight. I'll fight for you. I'll fight your wars for you. But on one condition. Hashem, Yilachem Lachem. Hashem says, I will fight for you. Va'atem taharishun. As long as you remain silent. In the places that you're supposed to be silent, if you remain silent, that will be the greatest merit for Hashem to fight the wars for a person. No need to fight. I'll fight your battles. But when it comes to shul, I want you to be quiet. I don't want their talking in shul. It should be a place of respect, a place where we come to pray. It's a place where the silence is the greatest respect and testimony for the awesomeness of the place, the makom, the shul. When we're in an opportunity, a moment, that we want to speak, chas v'shalom, what we're not allowed to speak, and we hold back, that silence is golden. That silence is a silence that Hashem says, I'll fight your battles. Hashem yilachem lachem. I'm going to fight for you. As long, the gift of silence, the importance of being quiet in the places that we're supposed to be. And today more than ever, today with so much going on out there, it's the shul, that's the refuge. It's the place that we run to for inspiration. It's the place that we run to for hizuk. It's the place that we run to to pray, to pour our hearts out to Hashem and to cry out for everything we need. Hashem says, as long as you're praying to me, as long as we have that shul with the respect and the awesomeness of the place, we can be guaranteed that our wars will be fought and won by Borei Olam. Just coming over here now, as I was leaving my 12th grade classroom, one of my students told me, says, Rabbi, you got to see this cartoon. It's the best cartoon you've ever seen. And I was like, I wish I could have brought it in. But he showed it to me on his phone. It was a little bit difficult. But if it was on a paper, I would have plastered this. It's great. Here it shows a tug of war. On one side of the rope, there are the heads of all the Arab nations. Each one of the Arab heads Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran, Syria, and all their presidents and all their heads are holding the rope on one side. And believe it or not, Obama's on that side as well. <laughs> and they hold, and they show, they show all of them together holding a rope. 
And then on the other side of the rope, there's a picture of Bibi holding the rope. And behind him, there's this huge hand with the finger of God placed on the back of the rope as if Hashem's finger is on the back of the other side. So you got these 50 guys on one side and you got little Israel on the other side, but you have the picture of God's hand, a finger literally placed on the end of that rope. That's our great equalizer. Hashem ilachem lachem. Ba'atem taharishun. If a person is looking for Yeshuot in life, we all can use that Kriyat Yamsuf. We're all waiting for the seat to split for us in different miracles, in different Yeshuot that our family needs, that the community needs, that Klal Yisrael needs in a big way. How are we Zocheh to a Kriyat Yamsuf? The same way they were. Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, I will fight the battle. I will save you. I'm just asking this is an area that we really can give a lot of chizuk to especially when it comes to no talking in shul how many stories and how many miracles that people amazing over the years they took upon themselves that's it i'm not talking in shul anymore i'm not coming to socialize if i have to i'll change my seat but from that point on when they started this new habit, behavior, of the reverence of the place of a shul, suddenly they found that tefillot started to be answered. Their lives took a whole different direction, a different meaning. This is the whole point. Kriyat Yamsuf, it started with the Jewish people and silence. But today, I want to go a little bit deeper. Today I want, to, uh, I want to share an incredible secret that is told to us by the great Targum Yonatan ben Uziel of how a person could experience a personal Kriyat Yamsuf in whatever area and whatever needs that a person may have. Now let's be specific. The Gemara actually compares Kriyat Yamsuf to two main hurdles in life. The Gemara says, Kashin Zivugan, Kriyat Yamsuf, Kashin Mizonotav Shel Adam, Kriyat Yamsuf. The first one means that a person's challenge to find their soulmate, their Zivug, is similar to Kriyat Yamsuf. The second point is that a person's parnasa and their wealth is also as difficult to attain as the story of Kriyat Yamsuf. And here we were given a little skeleton key. Here, if we could grab hold of this key and open up these locks, we're told by the Gemara that we'd be able to learn the secrets of how to find a zivug, a spouse, and also how to find Shalom Bayit in a home. Not just how to find a spouse, but how to keep a marriage with blessing, with the way we would dream for it to be. At the same time, another key, that if we could learn the concept and the secrets of Kriyat Yamsuf, we would open up the lack of health and wealth 
Kashin mizonotav. This is talking about the wealth, the ashirut of a person. We all would like to be able to make enough to support our families, to support our institutions, to be able to do the right thing with the wealth and the riches and the affluence of the United States. But how is one zochet to that? We need to create Yamsuf. So let's study the secrets, Kriyat Yamsuf, and how one is able to be zochet to a private Kriyat Yamsuf, and then we can be zochet to the blessings. What's amazing is, ironically, you won't believe who we're going to turn to to find out the secrets of a private Kriyat Yamsuf. If you take a look in the Psukim, we find something novel. In the beginning of Parshat Bishalach, it's over there that Moshe Rabbeinu and the Jewish people are standing at the banks of the ocean and suddenly they see Paro and the army begin to chase. They're coming from behind. There's nowhere to go. They begin to panic. They grip to their faith in God. Moshe Rabbeinu starts to pray. Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu, now is not the time to pray. Daber el bnei Yisrael v'isau. Now, talk to the Jewish people and tell them, go. Go where? Go into the ocean. And we know the incredible story of what took place. And it was there, Moshe Rabbeinu stretched his hand out. And at that moment, the sea split. And the Jewish people entered the sea as it split in front of them. The miracles that took place upon that day. I mean, the Midrashim go on and on, and year after year, and Pesach said there, after Pesach said there, we find about new miracles and new amazing phenomenons that took place on that day of Kriyat Yamsuf. And how the ocean didn't just split in half, but it actually split into 12 different tunnels where each tribe was able to go down its tunnel. And at the same time, the Pasuk describes to us, The water went up like ice glaciers. They went up like walls. On the right and left side of them, they were actually surrounded by walls of water as they entered and crossed the sea. They went through these tunnels of water. They were able to look through the transparent walls of water to see the other tribes. They were able to see everybody walking through together. Miraculously, the fruit of Gan Eden began to grow off of these ice walls. So they actually were able to pick off the fruit as they were crossing through. We all know that the ocean floor generally goes downward. But here, one of the miracles is that Hashem raised the ocean floor up. So like this, when they entered the ocean as it split, they'd be able to walk on a steady leveled path. Another miracle is that Hashem made the floor like marble. It wouldn't be difficult to walk through in a muddy, difficult floor, but rather it was clear and clean and marble with a wonderful scent of Gan Eden. These were incredible miracles that all took place as the Jewish people were crossing the Amsuf. But then came the moment of truth. We're here, Borei Olam tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, it's time to get rid of Paro and Mitzrayim forever. 
Now again, stretch your hand out over the sea. And return the waters on the Egyptians. And Moshe did just that. He stretched his hand out. And the waters came back down. The waters came down on Paro and Egypt and all of his army. And there did not remain from them until one. That's such a funny way of speaking. Because there was one. One that did remain. One that actually was spared his life because of the word Echad. And who was that? Paro. Paro himself, as he was bobbing up and down in the waters, the Midrash tells us that he screamed out, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And because of that, Ad Echad. Because of that, Hashem saved him. He was destined, Paro, to be the one to walk the face of the earth, telling everybody about the amazing miracles, the makot, the splitting of the sea, and all the great things that Hashem did, like this whole his life will be a walking Kiddush Hashem. Like this, when they hear it from him, the Goyim will believe it. But then, ladies, there's something here that is incredibly perplexing. The next Pasuk. We just got finished saying that the story is over. This is it. The Jews went through. The Egyptians went through. Moshe Rabbeinu stretched his hand out a second time. And he put the waters back on the Egyptians. That's it. Game over. It's done. But then the next Pasuk says, and it repeats a second time. And the Jewish people went through the ocean on dry land. The Hamayim Lahem Choma, and the waters stood up again as walls, Miminam on their right and left hand sides. What's going on? Why is the Torah repeating the splitting of the sea a second time? Says the Targum Yonatan Ben Uziel, I'll tell you why, and I'll prove it to you. Because if you want to see something fantastic, You'll take a good look at the words and you'll see that the first time the Torah talks about the sea being split, it's over there that it says the Jewish people, when they went into the sea, it said, They went into the water and then it became dry land. The second time it says, Round one, Round two, Bayabasha Betochayam. Wait, there's another discrepancy. In round one, when the Torah talks about splitting of the sea, it says, Vahamayim lahem choma, and it spells the word choma with a vav. Chet, vav, mem, he. Which means in English, a wall. But the second time Torah talks about splitting of the sea, it says, Vahamayim lahem choma, but there's no vav. Chet, Mem, he, which actually spells out the word chema, 
which means anger, rage. As if when the Torah talks about the second time of the splitting of the sea, it was as if the sea was angry to actually split. What's going on here? Why would the Torah repeat two times the splitting of the sea? And how come we have all these discrepancies? Says the Targum Yonatan Ben Uziel something fascinating. You have to hear this. This to me was a wow. And he writes, the first time the Jewish people came to the shores of the ocean, the Red Sea. Behind them, Paro with his entire army came charging behind them to kill. And the Jewish people, there was nowhere to go. They began to cry to Hashem. They gripped to their faith. Hashem told Moshe, go! And sure enough, Nachshon, as we know, and the entire Shevet Yehuda, they jumped into the water. And as the water came up to their nostrils, and they began to almost drown, that was the moment of their faith and their incredible showing of belief in God by jumping in first. That was the moment that the sea split. And that's why at the first time that the sea split, it was for the Jewish people. And what does the Torah say? hayam You know why? Because first we needed people to go hayam to jump into the waters. And in that merit, it became Yabasha. It became dry land and it split. However, after the Jewish people went through the sea and it split, Paro entered the sea as well. When Moshe Rabbeinu went and put the oceans back down on Paro and the Egyptian army, they were gone forever. And you know what happened? Says Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. There were two Jews that were left back in Egypt. And it's not that they were left back. They remained there on their own. When the Jewish people left Egypt, these two guys decided they're not going. And they stayed in Egypt with Paro. These two Rishayim, we know them. Their names, Datan the Avira. These were the two, the two nemesis of Moshe, the both the ones that constantly made trouble for Moshe and Aharon. The Tanva Aviram stay back in Egypt. And then they heard the news. They heard that Paro and the Egyptians, they were just drowned by in the seas. So Tatanva Aviram, they said, Whoa, we signed up with the wrong team. We stayed in Egypt. Now Paro and Egypt, they're washed up literally. They're gone. So you know what happened? came running. They ran out to the ocean. And they stood by the ocean shore. And they started screaming, wait. Wait for us. And at that moment, amazing thing took place. Hashem went and he split the sea a second time. Just for them. For these two Rishayim. And he made a private Kriyat Yamsuf. Now ladies, you have to hear how beyond amazing this is. You see, because there's a reason why Hashem got the Jewish people out of Egypt in a hurry. 
There's a reason why he had to pull us out in the middle of the night to make miracles that the night should look like day so no one should think we snuck out. But yet, we couldn't wait till morning. We had to get out that moment. And we had to get out with dough on our backs. We couldn't even have time to bake bread. That's where the matzah, we were running out with bread on our back. You know why we were taken out in a hurry? Because we were on Memtechare Tumah. We were on the 49th level of impurity. If he would have left us there for even another few minutes, we would have been, God forbid, falling into the 50th level, and that's the point of no return. One second. That means that Tatam Vaviram, who did not leave Egypt with the Jewish people, who did stay behind, they fell into the 50th level of Tum'ah. These guys were Rishayim of Rishayim. They hit rock bottom, the point of no return. And yet, when they come running up to the ocean, screaming, wait, Hashem goes, and He makes a Kriyat Yamsuf just for them. This is mind-boggling. What's going on? 50th level of Tum'ah. Yes, and that's, by the way, why the second time when the Torah tells you that the sea split a second time for Datan Vaviram, you know what the Pasuk says? The water again stood up as walls, but the word choma is spelled without a vav. Milashon chema, anger. The ocean was angry. The split for the Jewish people, Nachshon, the people that believe in God, that showed their faith, that jumped in head first. For them, the ocean was ready to split. But for these two, Rishayim, on the 50th level of Tumah, God, why are you telling us to split for them? The ocean was angry. We don't want to split for these guys. Nonetheless, 50th level of Tum'ah and all the problems they made. And Hashem still made for them a private Kriyat Yamsuf. And let's not forget what the problems were. They went and told Moshe Rabbeinu to Paro that he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. That means that Datan Va'aviram was a Moser. A Moser is somebody that goes to the government and tells on other Jews. Moser is Hayav Mita. You know what the Rambam writes? You can even kill him without a Bedin. That's how serious an Avera to be a Moser, to tell on another Jew to the government against another Jew. So Datan Va'aviram was a Moser. Datan Va'aviram were the guys that went with Korach. Datan Va'aviram were the ones also in this week's parasha that Hashem said, tell the Jewish people, Moshe Rabbeinu told them that the man will fall only six days. On Shabbat, the man will not fall. You know what Datan Va'aviram did? Just to try to make Moshe look like a liar. They took the man from Friday. They woke up early and they put it out on everybody's steps just to say, take a look. Moshe is a liar. He said, it's not going to fall on Shabbat. Look, it fell on Shabbat. And we know what a miracle happened. The Midrash tells us that the birds came. And the birds actually picked up all the man that was placed on Shabbat as to save the reputation of Moshe Rabbeinu. That's why some people have 
on Parshat B'Shalach, they have the minhag that they actually go and put out bread before Shabbat for the birds to remember what they did as of this per this week's parasha. Nonetheless, that was Datan Vaviram. These guys were really rotten. These guys were Shaim. 50th level of Tum'ah. Constantly making problems for Moshe. So how come? Here's the million dollar question. How come Hashem would go and make for these two Shaim a private Kriyat Yamsuf? There must be something, something that they had that was special enough to merit a private Kriyat Yamsuf. And we want to know what that is. Because if they could merit a personal, private Kriyat Yamsuf, then so can we. But what was it that they had? What was special? And I'd like to share with you what it was. And I'm a little bit surprised at myself that for these many years, I haven't come across this Rashi until this year. It's a Rashi that Rashi tells us something incredible. Listen to this. The Pasuk says, a few parashiyot ago, Vayuku shotre b'nei Yisrael asher samu alehem nogse paro lemor. Madua, lo kilitem chokchem lilbon kitmol shilshom gam tomol gam hayom. That means that the Egyptians put on the Jewish slaves a quota of bricks that they had to make a certain amount of bricks every day. And this quota was an astronomical number of bricks. It was literally not humanly possible to make. But nonetheless, they put on the Jews a tremendous quota of bricks to make daily. And if they don't reach that quota, they would get beatings. Well, the Shotrei Israel the Jewish officers that were placed in charge of the Jewish slaves, they saw that the Jewish slaves, they were so haggard by such a day's work that if they would get beatings now because they didn't fill the quota of bricks, they wouldn't survive. So these Jewish officers went and took the beatings in place of the Jewish people. Who are they? Says Rashi. You're not going to believe this. But says Rashi on the Pasuk, in Pasuk Chaf, Vayif Geuet Moshe Ve'aharon Nitzavim Likratam Bitzetam Me'et Paro. The Shotrei Israel, they walked up to Moshe and Aharon. Says Rashi, they started to complain. Moshe Ve'aharon, we take beatings for the Jewish people because they don't fill the quota of bricks. Now that you spoke to Paro, He's not going to even give us the bricks. He's going to make us do the bricks now from scratch. We're going to have to go to the fields. We're going to have to start from nothing. Till now, at least they gave us the mortar. At least they gave us something to work with. Says Rashi, who are these Shotrei Israel that took the beatings for the Jewish people? Says Rashi, Elu Datan Va'avira. Wow. I can't believe this either. I can't believe this either. They were Jewish officers in charge of the Jewish slaves. And every time they didn't fill that quota, Datan took the beatings so that the Jewish people don't have to. 
And because of that, they had an amazing zechut in Hashem's eyes. Because of that, when it came makat, when it came makat choshech, where many of the Rishayim and Am Yisrael died, the Tanva Aviram did not. When it came Makat Bichorot, when it came time to leave Egypt, when it came to finally the moment of truth, after siding with Paro, like the Pasuk says, says Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, before Paro chased the Jewish people down to the ocean. You know what the Pasuk says? The Jewish people left Egypt. Vayomer Paro el b'nei Yisrael. Nevuchim hem Paro said to the Jewish people, Look, they're lost. Sagar alem hamidbar. They're locked up in the desert. They're walking around in circles in the desert. They don't know where they're going. One second. What does that mean? Vayomer Paro el b'nei Yisrael. How could Paro say to the Jewish people, They left already. They're the ones you're talking about, lost in the desert. Says Targum Yonatan ben Uziel. You know who Paro was talking to? El Bene Israel? Elu Datan Va'aviram. The only two Jews that stayed behind in Egypt. Says Paro to Datan Va'aviram. Take a look. Your people are lost. They went out for three days. I know they're not coming back. And now they're lost in the desert. They're trying to run away from me. And there's nowhere to go. I'm going to chase them. I'm going to get them. And here Datan Vaviram finds out. Paro and his army is drowned at sea. They come running, screaming. Wait. Yeah. And Hashem goes. And makes for them a private Kriyat Yamsuf. And that's why. The Pasuk repeats a second time after the waters were put on Egypt and after what we thought the story was over. And then yet again, the Pasuk in Chavtet says, O Bnei Yisrael, a second time, Halchu b'yabasha betoch hayam, v'hamayim lahem choma, mi minam u'misim olam. Why? Why did they marry the Kriyat Yamsuf? A private Kriyat Yamsuf. Because they took the beatings, for the Jewish people. And when a Jew puts his neck out for another Jew, that is something that in Hashem's eyes trumps somehow almost everything. And even though this person, like Datan Aviram, was such a shy, and they were in the 50th level of Tum'ah, and they literally were the nemesis, the enemy, Moshe Rabbeinu, and how many tsarot they made for Moshe throughout until Korach. But yet, Hashem says, even though the ocean was angry, split for them. Because they took the beatings for the Jewish people. And because of that, they have a merit by me that's untouchable. This is amazing. Says the Sar Shalom Mibels, that you know what every Jew must take from this. Here's the revelation. Here's a secret of how definitely we too could actually merit a private Kriyat Yamsuf. And today we can all use a Kriyat Yamsuf. Everybody can use miracles today. Everybody could use our own private Yushuot, whether it be in health, whether it be in wealth, whether it be in Zivug, whether it be in Shalom Bayit, whether it be in bringing up our kids. We can use the splitting of the seas of our problems. And here's the secret. 
says the Sar Shalom Ibels, if you are to take the beatings of other people, now we don't mean that in a physical way. We don't mean that in a literal way. But if one Jew puts their neck out to help others in difficulty, and you shoulder their burdens, and you're nose be'ol chavero, you carry the weight of their problems with them. And sometimes you don't have to do that much. Sometimes just to listen, already you took off half the weight of their shoulders. Sometimes to allow somebody just to get off their chest and to vent the difficulties in life that they're dealing with. Just to listen, not even to instruct, not even to guide, just to have a shoulder for them to lean on. That already is a merit of merits. Says the Sar Shalom Bells. You could take the beatings of the Jewish people in two ways. In a literal way, by being no sebe ol chavero, carrying the difficulties and the burdens of other people going through hard times, shoulder it with them, help them through it, take their hand, don't run the other direction, don't be a partial friend that you're only around in the good times, but when people are going through difficulties, those friends are nowhere to be frowned. That's not a real friend. The real friends are the ones that are there in the difficult moments. Those are the real people in your life. At that moment, you see who's ready to carry the burden with you. Those moments we find out who our real friends are. Those moments we find out the value of family like we've never appreciated before. Those are the moments that we see who's really ready to take the beatings for us. But says the Sar Shalomi Bells, there's another way. There are two ways to take the beatings of the Jewish people. And there is a spiritual way as well. And that is, he writes, for the men to toil and learn Torah deeply and aggressively. And to really put yourself into it and sweat and work at the depth of the learning of Torah. Because we know Torah mateshet kohoshel adam. When a person really puts themselves into deep learning, it takes a toll on you, even in a physical way. It's like a mini beating. And that's what the Pasuk says. Zot ha-Torah. You want to know what Torah really is about, the real learning of Torah? It's not about a coffee in one hand and leaning back in a chair with a cigarette in another. No, that's not the way we make Gedolim. The real Torah. Zot Torah. Adam ki amut ba'ohel. Someone who's ready to kill themselves in the ohel of Torah to be able to understand another Rashi, to be able to understand another piece of Gemara, to be able to understand another Tosafot. That is a beating for the Jewish people. That's a spiritual beating. For the men, Says the Sar Shalomi Bells, that's a spiritual beating. And for the women, it's to take upon yourself to pray for other people's problems. But with a whole heart, there should not be a Sidur today that doesn't have names, whether it be on a little bookmark or whether it be sometimes some people are bold enough to actually write the names in the pages of the Sidur itself. Maybe that's much, but nonetheless. But look what it means to pray for another Jew and to cry and to feel their hurt and to feel what they're going through. 
and not to be such a selfish society, but to take the burden of others on your shoulder and at least to pray for them. Rabbi, I'd love to help out that person. What can I do? I don't have the money. I'm not asking for money. You pray? Can you take their name? Can you put it inside a bookmark? So when it comes to Rifa'inu, you can pray to God that they should have a Rifu'ah. When it comes to Barech Aleinu, you can pray to God that they'll have a Parnassah to put on their table. Or maybe they have other problems. There's a Shmak Aleinu. That's all inclusive of whatever it may be. But don't walk away from the person at the time that they need you the most. Shoulder the problem with them. In a spiritual way. Pray for them and take the beating with them. That's something that we found out now through, ironically enough, from old people, that when you take the beatings for other people, that's something that's so precious to God. He never forgets it. And when it comes to your time and need, when it comes to your Yeshua, when it comes to your Kriyat Yamsuf, He'll give you a private Kriyat Yamsuf, just like He gave to them. This is a wow. I'm very close with Baruch Hashem, all my brother-in-laws. One of my brother-in-laws, Moshe Lankri from Lakewood, New Jersey, is a great guy to, to learn from and to know. One time he told me that, I believe it was one of his uncles. He was an Israeli soldier in the Yom Kippur War. And his whole group of soldiers, they were captured behind the enemy lines in Syria in 72. And the Syrian prison, prisons that were there, or holding cells of where they held the Israeli soldiers, I mean, was beyond belief what they did to these poor soldiers. They violated every international accord of hostages of war. They tortured them day in, day out. They starved them. They didn't give them anything to drink. I mean, this was going on for weeks. And one thing they had, the Arabs had as a ritual that they would give the, the hostage, they would give the captured Israeli soldiers daily beatings. A day didn't go by without every soldier getting a horrific beating. After a few days of beatings, some of the soldiers started to, uh, started to go. They started hallucinating. They started to show signs of their lives being hang, hung by a thread. There was one soldier there, Moshe Lankri's uncle. He was one of the guys of the group. And he saw that once some many of his Israeli soldier friends, they take one more beating, that would be it. They'd be gone. That afternoon, the Arabs came in for their rounds of beatings. And when it came time to come to these guys that were not holding by life, Moshe Lankri's uncle gets up and tells them, listen, these guys take a beating again, they're dead. If you want, I'll take the beatings for them. They said, you're ready to take their beatings? He said, yeah. They took them out and they gave them another two, three rounds of beatings. That's besides his beating that he already got that morning. And he took the beatings for these guys that day so that they may live another day. The next day, 
the Arab, the torturers, they didn't come back. That night, they mentioned to one of the guys that was so impressed by what this guy did, this soldier, that he took the beatings for the other soldiers so they don't die. They let them go. This is something that Hashem would never forget. Obviously, this is an extreme measure, but the point was well made. What it means to understand our obligation to another Jew. It's an obligation of a sister and a brother. And what we would do for our own sister and brother, we are actually expected with the expectations of Hashem to stick our necks out for another Jew, even if you might not know them, even if they're not a close relative. Years ago, I was very lucky. I had a, a vacation, Sukkot, and I was in Israel with my sister and one of my younger brothers. And it came Cholamoyed, Sukkot. I was, uh, you know, as the older brother, I was looking to take him around a little bit. I took him to Tel Aviv. There was a, a, a museum there. The name of the museum is the Bet HaTfutzot. And this was a historical museum. And what they had there, now again, this goes back 25 years ago. So, you know, then the big thing about this museum was they, what they called in Hebrew the supercomputer. Now, in Hebrew, there's a word for computer, which is machshev, but they didn't call it machshev. They had to spruce it up, you know, for marketing purposes. So they let everybody in Israel know they have a supercomputer. So you'd get You'd walk in, you'd get online, and they would give you a time, as if they gave you a five-minute slot of an appointment, and you'd have your time with the supercomputer. Now, we got our time, 2.30 in the afternoon, and we spent the whole morning going around to all the different parts of the museum, and there were many amazing historical things there. Came 2.30, we came to the supercomputer. And we came to the supergirl that was sitting by the supercomputer. She was manning it. And she turns to us and she says, listen, the best way to use your five minutes on the computer, tell me your family name. They put in your family name to the computer and the computer starts to spit out all different types of information, historical information, going dating back to thousands of years. Your family roots and famous people in your family and who you came from. And there's really a lot of amazing stuff. Again, 25 years ago, when we didn't have the technology of today, this was a supercomputer, you know? This was, this was heavy stuff. So we were like, wow. Like, I looked at my brother and I said, you know, I don't know. Uh, go ahead, uh, put in the Ben Shushan name. Let's see what happens. So the computer starts thinking and clicking and clocking and ticking and talking. And it starts, starts spitting out these sheets, one after the next, after the next. And I'm looking at my brother like, wow. What's what you know, like we thought we were a simple family. I mean, what already could the computer say? We know our grandparents, we know our great grandparents. Maybe there was someone in the family years back that got in trouble. Who knows? Well, you know. Finally, the lady rips off the printout, and this is the old day printers where the printout looks like an invoice, 
and it's like literally dotted lines on an itemized bill. And she starts going down page after page. After, and she starts telling us your family came from here and they originate from there and came from this country and then to that country and then they ended up in Morocco. And it, was, it was really amazing. It was, it was super. It was amazing, especially for that time. And then finally, I'll never forget, she says, did you ever hear of a Rebbe Yehuda ben Shushan? I looked at my brother. I said, no. Who's that? She says, you never heard of him? I said, no. He lived about a thousand years ago. I said, that's why. How would I ever hear of him? She said, but you should have heard. Because he was the one that the Rambam, when the Rambam and his father, Reb Maimon, came from Spain after the Inquisition, and they fled Spain, and they came to North Africa, and they spent some time in Morocco, and then later on went to Israel, and then finally to Egypt, where the Rambam ended up residing. He said they came through Rabbi Yehuda ben Shushan's house. They stayed by him. Matter of fact, according to this printout, the Rambam had a daughter who married Rabbi Yehuda ben Shushan's son, and they stayed back while the Rambam continued on to Israel. He left over a daughter in Morocco. I looked at my brother, I said, we never heard anything about this. Not from my father, not from my grandmother, who was supposed to be the historian of the family. I said, wow, that's amazing. Well, we go home. We mentioned to my grandmother, Rabbi Yudav ben Shushan. Yeah, sure. I said, how did you know this? You kept this from us all these years. She says, well, in Morocco, certain towns had a minhag that on the Kitubah, when they got married, so on the Kitubah, when they would write the name of the Hatan and the Kala, they would actually write a family tree showing where the family of Hatan came from, where the family of Kala came from, and they would generally go back a few generations until somebody famous. She says, on my Kitubah, they have the family tree going back to Rabbi Yehuda ben Shushan that his son married the Rambam's daughter. I said, how come nobody told us this? This is good stuff for Shidduchim. <laughs> We're going to start dating, and people are going to say, who are you? You know, especially in the community. Min Habuk, who's your father? Where did you come from? So I called my father to America, and I said, Abba, how come you never told us? We come from Rabbi Yudab ben Shushan. He says, of course I told you. I never told you. I said, no. He says, listen, I want to tell you a story about Rabbi Yudab ben Shushan and the day he died. I said, okay. He says, you know, over the years, you remember growing up that every Kippur, you see that I always light a candle right before Yom Kippur starts. I said, yeah. I said, I thought you did that for Yom Kippur. He said, no. I lit a candle for Rabbi Yudab ben Shushan every Yom Kippur. I said, wow, why? He says, listen to this story. The Pasha, the Arab duke or mayor of the Jewish towns in Morocco at that time really hated Jews. And he made a terrible decree. He made a decree that no longer can there be any synagogues opened in a city or a town that has a mosque. If there's a mosque there, in the presence of the mosque, there cannot be any Jewish synagogues. No shuls. Now, what town didn't have a mosque? Every town had a mosque. Every city, every village 
had a mosque. Where there ever was Arabs, there was a mosque. And basically it was a decree to justify shutting down all the shuls. And they did, they shut down all the shuls. And it's amazing that basically around that time of the decree, who ends up coming to the shores of Morocco? The Rambam and his father, Rabbi Maimon. And the Rambam had that time a daughter. And he came to Morocco and he resided and he came to the house of Rabbi Yudab ben Shusha. When he found out, when the Rambam found out that all the synagogues, the shuls, they were all shut down. So he says, but Yamim Noraim, Rosh is coming up in a month. Rosh is coming up in only a few weeks, whatever it was. He says, we, we, we got to open our shul for Rosh Kippur. Well, they didn't know what to do. The Rambam said, I want to open a shul in a basement. Let's open it in your house, Rabbi Huda. Rabbi Huda says, I, I, I will be more than happy. We'll make the shul in my basement. The whole town somehow or other scrunched into the shul on Rosh Hashanah in the basement. Clandestine, secret operation without anybody knowing, so to speak. Although the Arabs knew that the Jews went somewhere. But they didn't know where. And Rosh Hashanah, first day and second day, how they did Kiat Shofar in the silence, I don't know how they did it, but they got through. Rosh Hashanah came and went. They had a beautiful minyan in Rabbi Huda's basement. And there was no problems. And the Arabs didn't find out where. The Rambam told them, we're going to do the same thing for Yom Kippur. Ten days later, Yom Kippur, they went down to the basement. They made the minyan. And in the middle of Musaf, on Yom Kippur Day, the doors of the basement break open. And in walks the Arab Pasha with his army of men. And he looks around the room. And everybody's face is white. And they know that this is it. This is sudden death. They know that this guy was such a rasha. He will kill without any remorse. And to go against his decree, this is a death sentence. He looks around, everybody's standing, shaking in silence. The Rambam and his father was there. And the Pasha looks around and says, Today is your day of mercy. Today is Yom Kippur. I'll also have mercy. I'm only going to kill the person who it was his idea to make this minyan, to make this synagogue. Whose idea was it? If you tell me, he's the only one that will be killed. You don't tell me, I'm going to kill everybody. Just then the Rambam jumps up on his feet. He's about to open his mouth to say, Rabbi Yehuda ben Shushan jumps up and screams, This is my house! This is my shul! It was my idea! The Rambam looks at him and says, That's not true! Rabbi Yehuda says, Shah, don't talk when your elders are talking. He was older than the Rambam. The Pasha says, Ah, Rabbi Huda, this is your house. It was your idea, this is your shul. He took him in front of the entire shul and they chopped off his head. They decapitated him and killed him on Yom Kippur, Musaf. My father says, That's why I light the candle every year on Kippur. He says, If he would not have opened his mouth, 
if he would not have jumped. He says, you see that whole set of Rambam on the shelf? There would be no Rambam. He jumped and he took the beating and he got killed. But he saved. He saved that whole kihila. Amazing. The Rambam felt that that was already, I guess, enough. And that's after that, they were Meshadech, the kids. But this goes to show you what it is that Hashem demands from us. This is something that Hashem expects from us. You're my children. I expect that you put your neck out for your brothers, for your sisters, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter what their last name is, no matter what their past was. A Jew is a Jew. That's your brother. That's your sister. Take the beatings for Klal Yisrael. Be no se Carry the weight and the burden of the problems of others. Pray for them at least. Learn Torah with vigor to take a beating for the beauty of the Jewish people in a Torah way. These are the secrets to merit our own private Kriyat Yamsuf. Those are the moments that we see Yeshua'ot. In those merits, Hashem says, I'll split the seas of your problems each and every time. Look what you've done for my children. Thank you for listening. Visit our website, www.learntorah.com, where we have more than 8,000 shiurim for your selection. Coming soon in spring 2015, look forward to our updated website and free apps for both Apple and Android, featuring the ability to set auto-downloads of your favorite rabbis so you can listen while offline. On our website and at your local New York Hebrew bookstores, available for purchase are our featured publications, including Rabbi Eli Mansour's Living Torah and Insights on the Amidah.